Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name is Connor McQuivy. I'm your host as always. Renoites is the weekly interview podcast where I talk to all sorts of folks from Northern Nevada who are doing interesting and important work, stuff that matters to the community. I try to have a pretty wide variety of guests, so a little bit of everything for you, local news and politics, businesses, nonprofits. Today on the podcast, we are talking development. Recently in the news, you may have heard that Jacobs Entertainment purchased the Bonanza building in downtown in their neon line district that was in the running for Marmot Properties, a local developer. Marmot Properties also recently bought the Junkie building and has plans to develop that into several retail spaces and reactivate the building. Today on the show, I'm excited to welcome Batuan Zade, the president of Marmot Properties, the new president as of this year. Marmot has had a pretty big impact, especially in the Midtown area, a lot of residential development there. On today's show, we talked about what it means to be a developer, what that process looks like, how to figure out whether projects pencil out or not, whether we're going to see a lot more residential units being built or not, and why or why not. It seems that very often in the conversation about how Reno's growing and changing, there are the perceptions of the good guys and the bad guys, the developers, the big businesses, the out-of-state interests, the locals, all of that. And so in keeping with the spirit of Renoites, instead of talking about people, I'm excited to talk with them. Bot's joining us on the show today, and it was a fantastic conversation about what is actually happening in these areas. We talked about the city's revitalization program, the tenant improvement money that is going to several businesses in town to help revitalize their storefronts, both interior and exterior, particularly in downtown, why some of the buildings downtown stay vacant year after year after year, and a bunch more. If you have suggestions, feedback, ideas for guests, anything like that, reach out, let me know. I'm easy to find on the internet. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Renoites. Shoot me a message on Instagram. That's a good way to get a hold of me. Or send me an email. My address is Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at Renoites.com. If you enjoy this show, if you find value in it, consider signing up on Patreon. It takes a significant amount of time and money to make this show. You can help support it and make it financially sustainable by contributing as little as a few dollars a month. One of the things I'm also trying to do for patrons this season is additional bonus content. So there's an extra 10 minutes or so of this episode that's available exclusively for people who support the show at any financial level, even $3 a month. You can learn more about that at patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash renoites. And now this week's guest from Marmot Properties, Batuan Zade. Batuan Zade from Marmot Properties, new CEO of Marmot Properties. Welcome to Renoites. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I am excited to learn about how the development world works because we talk on the show a lot about how Reno's growing and changing and you've been pretty active in the development world especially around Midtown and Marmot's had a kind of a big imprint on how Midtown has grown and changes and you have projects coming up in Midtown so to start can you just tell me a little bit about what Marmot Properties is people know they're a developer what kind of projects and and what does Marmot as a developer look like so Marmot essentially is a fully integrated development firm. So we're general contractors, we're property managers, we're brokers, essentially most of the things under the real estate umbrella that a developer does. So we have a GC team that GCs our own projects and takes on clients to GC. We have a management team that manages our own projects, like property management team, not project management team, but Mm -hmm. property management team that leases up our buildings, manages our buildings. And then also for clients as well. And then same thing with brokers. Mm -hmm. So we find our own deals or we represent ourselves as brokers on our own deals. We 
underwrite ourselves. We essentially find projects, underwrite it, make sure it works. We're the brokers that buy it. Then we're the general contractors that do the project. And then we're the selling brokers at the end. So fully vertically integrated from beginning to end. Yeah. What's the, what's the benefit of that? Like, why is that make sense for you as a, as a business to do it that way instead of working with other people and other companies? It gives us a few advantages. So one, it allows us to control more variables. Sometimes an outside GC doesn't value engineer like you, doesn't, you know, have the same incentives as you. So it doesn't move as fast as you. Hmm. Being your own GC gives us more control. But more importantly, it opens up the performance of the project. So essentially, another developer coming in from outside has to pay a GC. Because we pay ourselves, we have a larger profit on the project. Hmm. So projects that don't pencil to those GCs pencil to us because our margins are much larger than theirs on the same projects. Gotcha. How long have you been at Marmot? I've been at Marmot about five years now. I recently just purchased it. So I was just a broker. Mm-hmm. And then I was doing my own projects on the side. So I was helping people buy, sell real estate, mostly commercial, but I was also doing my own projects. So I would find deals that I could bring my own investors for and I can do myself. And I, I would hire GCs out okay. back then. And then about a year and a half ago, we got our own GC license. So now we're GCing our own projects. And then as of January 1st, which has been, we entered contract about six months ago, but that was a date we picked just to make taxes and stuff easy. Mm-hmm. So as of January 1st, I'm 100% owner. Right on. Congrats. Yeah, thanks. How'd you come into work in development? Because I know previously, before you were working in real estate and development, you were you know, running and managing businesses here in town, right? Can you talk a little bit about the career path from what you were doing before to what you're doing now? Sure. So I was a business owner my whole life, and I technically still am, but I was a retail business owner. So bars, restaurants. I first came to Reno, and I opened the bar. and a year after, I got my real estate license because the bar was boring. Mm. It was just not <laughs> enough work. I wanted to work a lot. And what bar is it? It was Hukava. It was oh, in okay. the old, the bus station across from the bus station in the Reno Riviera Motel. Oh, okay. Oh, so that, not not the current Hukava location. Yeah, it moved twice. Oh. I moved it twice. Yeah. So I bought it when it was in Reno Riviera Motel. For a year, I just ran that. It was really fun, and then I got my real estate license, where. First, I entered residential and I realized, okay, I am not that agent. I am not an agent that tells you where the baby's room goes or (laughs) what color the dining room should be. I just didn't connect well. So I joined a development firm. First, I started a development firm from residential side to their development side. And then I started selling homes in a track home development. Mm -hmm. So I would sit in the sales office where people would come into the model home and I would try to sell them unbuilt empty plots of land Mm -hmm. to be then building a house on and that was cool but it was far away it was in Fernley so I joined Marmot and that's when I went from this residential agent to underwriting apartment buildings office retail industrial I was looking to work with investors rather than homeowners Mm -hmm. and I connected with that a lot more because it was more relevant to what I'm doing before that, which was business. It was, everything was numbers. Everything was doing a deal with someone. So I was running both for a while and it was fun. I moved to Kava to Arlington Towers. First, it was in the north side of Arlington Towers. It was tiny. And then I moved it to the south side into the fishbowl space and did like a total night lounge. Mm -hmm. 
where Reno really hasn't had that, I think, in downtown. It, maybe they had it a long time ago, but it was missing. So very happy it worked because after that, I bought the whole first floor of Arlington Towers and then sold the business to my manager. Hmm. He was with me for, I think, a little over four years then. And I wanted to focus on real estate. So I, I also, during that time, opened Pizzava in Midtown, which was cool. I mm-hmm. opened it with my cousin and then I sold it to him just for the money that I put into it, essentially. And then I could focus even more on real estate because my real estate career was just going up. I was yeah. making a lot more money from working from home and working with awesome people doing awesome business. And then I got really good at brokerage, I think. I worked with some really good people. I got really lucky that a lot of my clients were kind of like mentors and we all grew together. I had a lot of even people that I work with today who started off doing like residential houses and now they're doing like big buildings. So we like went through that transition together. Mm-hmm. I work with a group that came here from out of town, young guys, and they crushed it in Reno and then they went national. But I also grew with those guys. And then I had a lot of clients that were just constantly active in real estate. So mm-hmm. I could see the moves they were making. And I definitely saw myself add a lot of value to their projects. And I found out, oh, that's where all the value is, is finding a deal, building that relationship, underwriting it correctly. Mm. And then the follow through is a lot easier if you have that correct setup in the beginning. So the broker's job was really important. So I started doing my own deals. Mm-hmm. And you, you've mentioned that like when you had these commercial properties that because you have already worked with these businesses, you've liked to have tenants that you already know and have worked with and kind of have commercial properties that you already have like those connections for the tenant, right? Can you talk a little bit about like helping put the businesses in the properties that, oh, you're, yeah, totally. that you're doing? So I'm not disagreeing with landlords for this, but a lot of landlords want like high credit tenants. Like they want the tenant to come and build out the space for them. They want them to have 10 other locations and this is their 11th. and. Mm-hmm. Like they want strong companies to come into their buildings. And sometimes with that desire, your building sits vacant for a really long time. Case in point, Mm -hmm. all of downtown. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, they're also scared because it's a lot of money to put into a building to bring it up to a tenant's needs. So they, they don't understand the value change in their buildings and they're more happy just holding it. So I can't Mm -hmm. say that much against them because I'm also in the game. So I know how it works. But for, for personally me, I, I don't mind like the low credit, no credit tenants where somebody's coming out of a, a shop as a manager and now they want to open their own business. And usually they know 90% of the job, mm-hmm. which is the actual job. The 10%, the back end, the creating the entity, doing the QuickBooks, et cetera. That's all really easy. I could do it for someone in 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's, there's a lot of tenants that I have that I personally hold their hand and walk them from, from my office where we create their EIN to the county offices to get their DBAs and to the city to then do their business license. That progress for someone coming in from the outside could take weeks, but we do it in like 30 minutes Mm -hmm. because I've done it so many times. So breaking that barrier makes so many business owners come to life. And that's kind of what we did with downtown, midtown, South Reno a little bit. We bought these totally underperforming buildings and brought in businesses to them, build out a lot of their construction, get them stabilized, give them free rent and let them stabilize. And then a majority of them, or mostly all of them, they do so well. They spend their money on personal property, like tables, chairs, whatever they want, let us do the construction. And then they thrive. 
So creating business owners is really lucrative, actually, because you're bringing these buildings back to life, but also collecting rent and performing. So that's kind of our theory. That's how we arbitrage real estate, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's lucrative, but it's also beneficial to the community. Yeah. I mean, you said that it's easy for you to set up the kind of like backend stuff of the business, but is there also like a kind of time investment of like not babysitting these businesses, but seems like you're pretty hands-on with making sure that the tenants that you're putting in, like they need some support, right? If they're especially there, they don't have 10 locations already. Is that like an extra part of the work for you too, is, you know, bringing your kind of background in, in running businesses to include that in the development stuff that you're doing? That's like the joy part. Uh, I actually enjoy that part the most is because I know they're going to do well. Like you can tell when there's a really hardworking business owner, like I can tell in a very short time conversation that they're going to crush, mm-hmm. they're, they're going to do really well. So I try to put, I try to work with businesses that like I could see it in the in the owner's eyes that like anything that they don't know is easily made up for through their ambitions and dedication to their business. Mm-hmm. Like the knowledge is probably like 30% of it. 70% is just effort and desire. Mm-hmm. So when I'm helping the businesses, I mostly help the businesses that I know that my time to them is going to be super beneficial for them. So I try not to work with people that are a little bit not so invested in their business. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's a few people that like do it for the ego, not for the, there's some business owners that I've met that I've said, you know, I think you're in this for the wrong reasons. I've been in businesses for the wrong reasons. So I, I recognize that in myself as well. Yeah. But I try to work with people that I know if I just plant that seed and send them in the correct direction, they're going to save a lot of opportunity cost. They're not going to spend the money on the wrong marketing or they're not going to spend their time working on the wrong thing in their business. And that I know if I just set them off in that path, I don't have to walk the whole path with them, but I know at least they're going in the right path. Yeah. What, what businesses have you been in for the wrong reasons? What, what, what's some lessons that you've learned? Well, so I opened Tukava and then my cousin and I opened Pizzava and we were like, oh, Ava, wow, cool. <laughs> Let's open another Ava business. So we like for a short term period, we rented a really expensive office. Like it was like almost $4,000 a month rent. And at the time, we were just like, oh, we'll open this marketing company. (laughs) I think we'll do really well because we know what we're doing. And then we realized we are not going to do that well. (laughs) So six months, was like, man, we don't really have the passion for this. We're not going to get this thing cash flowing without blood, sweat, and tears. And we have good things going on. We Mm. shouldn't be doing this. And I get it. That's one of many. Yeah. Let's, I want to address the, the elephant in the room that a lot of people see developer as like the most evil thing that a person can be, right? Like that is a just like inherent criticism for some people, right? They talk about developers as like a baddie, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and not like a bad in a good way, but like bad in the bad way. So can you just talk about kind of the perception of developers broadly, right? Like what do you hear about developers? What do people get right or wrong about what developers do or what their impacts are on neighborhoods and communities. Can you just talk about kind of that public perception piece? Yeah. I don't really like calling people evil because it gives you a really easy escape of like trying to understand them. So like, I really think there are some bad developers that are bad for communities because they have a financial incentive and that it doesn't align with, you know, direction that that community should be going towards. So I don't disagree with that totally. 
But I do think there are great developers. There's a few in Reno that we're really, really lucky to have, like Partols, awesome dude. We're very lucky to have Partols. And then there's a few other developers. I guess I could name them all, but I don't want to look like I'm picking sides. <laughs> but I think the local developers, for their financial incentive to continue, they have to be aligned with the community. Mm. Because if they don't, then they're going to get destroyed. Like every project we do, we try to stay as conscious as possible because like there are people that can just randomly anonymously report your buildings just because they hate you to the city. And like any anonymous inspection has to be kind of followed up on. Hmm. So there's bad developers out there, like kind of smaller ones, even some local ones that do really bad things. And then I just see them not do any more business mm -hmm. because if, if you're not moving with the community as a local developer, you're going to feel it yeah. and it's going to slow you down and then you're not going to do any business. Mm -hmm. So as a local developer, you have to be conscious about these things. So I've seen outside developers that are just too powerful. There's some good ones. There's, I think they're mostly good. There's a couple bad ones, but they're mostly good. Are, are these people, like when you say outside developers, are those like people from other parts of the country that are seeing Reno as just a market and kind of coming in without any knowledge of the area or the community. Is that what you're talking about when you say outside developers, like people who aren't connected to the city before they kind of invest in it? Well, I think there's urban developers and kind of rural developers, like the these large apartment buildings in rural areas of Reno and, and Sparks. I don't mind those guys that much because they're risking a lot. And like, what's the worst that can happen? We have too much housing. Like mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's a great problem to have. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so they're risking, essentially they work off of fees. They're not really putting their own money in. They just go raise capital, go find banks to give them money, go find contractors. They're the middle guys. They're the arbitragers. And, and if the project doesn't work out, usually they just wipe their hand clean. The bank takes it, sells it to some other capital group. But like, we almost want those to happen because that's how the rents of those buildings come down. All these private developers building these large apartment buildings they don't really talk with each other that much. They watch each other's actions. Like, oh, I see you pulled that permit there. Ooh, like they kind of, you know, they watch each other, but mm -hmm. they don't communicate to each other that much. So they're just randomly trying to find profitable projects. And if they don't take the project, they don't make money. So there's like, I love all these apartment buildings coming up because that's what's going to help drive rent down. The mm -hmm. more of them, the better. Because the more apartment buildings, the more competitive they have to be, the higher chance that, you know, they can't get the target rents. So they're going to give concessions. They're going to give free rents. They're going to give gift cards, you know, Apple TVs, whatever. And if those don't work, they're going to drop the rents. Like look at where Park Lane started. I think when they first released Park Lane, I have the numbers somewhere. I had their rent roll of what they're going to ask for for all the units. It's like considerably higher than what it is today. Hmm. So like we thought all these Californias were going to move to Park Lane. But really, it was a lot of locals who just got priced out of the housing to purchase a home. At first, it was prices. Now, it's interest rates. And like at first, prices were super high, so they didn't want to come in. But now, interest rates are so high, they can't afford it. So, mm -hmm. they got good housing. I mean, Park Lane has beautiful amenities. And that's a lot of our locals living there. So, that was a benefit to our community. A lot of people were against it. But now looking at it, okay, so your rents came down by like 30% and you have local Reno people mm -hmm. living a good life who can't afford to get into a home. I think that's a win. Yeah. And then same thing with all these other apartment units coming online. 
they're all coming online like a lot at the same time, even though there's no new construction, like for the last six months, it looks kind of scary. All those units that started last upcycle are going to be online. And I think that's going to help with the rents a lot. Yeah. So any person who's like anti-density, they're like anti-low rents because it's supply demand. So mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, my understanding of why like more apartments are better, even for, you know, people who are looking for not these new places, right? There are a lot of people right now that are living in and paying higher rent on older buildings and older units because that's what's available. And when like, I don't really like the word luxury because that feels like a marketing term for these buildings rather than an actual description of what they are. But when these like, quote unquote, luxury market rate units open up, you get people moving up to them and opening up a space in, yeah, correct. you know, in other kind of housing, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's class A, B, C. Class A is that new luxury. When those come on, they usually come on because they want to, they, they give a lot of incentives because they want to lease it up. They mm -hmm. want to make that ramp up leasing period as short as possible. So they give those concessions. It creates this vacuum effect into B class. So B class moves up and B class is basically units that has been renovated in the last three years. Mm -hmm. Those come up and then C class comes up. So it opens up a, a new pool of inventory. But either way, that that's definitely a correct argument. I think that's very logical. But mm -hmm. either way, any unit is a good unit. Like as many units as possible is the best thing we can do for the community, I think. And I see a lot, we, we're losing a lot of our locals to like Texas, Arizona. Like a lot of our locals are saying, dude, this is crazy. I can't afford it here and mm -hmm. leaving. And we see those guys and we're like, damn, we're losing our own people to other states where they've like grown up here. And I guess the non like pro developer side argument is these units are causing that rent to go up. It's like, no, no. It's the demand. We have so many people that want to come here, not because of those units, mm -hmm. just in general, that those units, if they didn't come on, it, it would look a lot worse. Yeah. So they've kind of softened the blow a little bit. Right. Yeah. Like those those units are the effect, not the cause. Correct. Right. Yeah. I don't know how they could be the cause. How can you make that argument? But if you're wrong, you're hurting Reno. Like if you're wrong about, let's say they are the cause and you stop it and you're wrong, that's really bad for our locals. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just the most logical thing, the most thing that makes sense to me just in an unbiased way. Okay, fine, I develop, but still, the most common thing that I think makes sense is the more units, the cheaper the rent locally. Mm -hmm. A couple more housing questions, then I want to talk about kind of neighborhoods too, right? And some of your commercial projects. So you mentioned that a lot of these apartment buildings are coming online. I live close to downtown, so I see a lot of these buildings that are you know, they're, they're vertical. They got, they got multiple floors up. A lot of these are big, big complexes. They got like a couple hundred units in them. I think the ballpark apartments are well on their way now. They're getting closer and closer. And we'll talk about the Santa Fe building, which is right across from there. So you did mention that not a lot of new construction is starting though. Can you talk a little bit about this kind of cycle of, we had a lot of buildings start, they're going up right now. They might be opening soon-ish but you don't think a lot of new stuff is going to be coming after that. Can you talk a little bit about why, why that is? There's so much demand in Reno. Why do you think that we might see a slowdown in, in new construction? So development is more financed than it is real estate, I think. Uh, it's a lot of spreadsheets and it's very affected by interest rates. So when you have these high interest rates that we have today, you can't get projects off the ground because the Excel sheets don't make sense. You plug the numbers in and you're like, dude, like we can't take this project. And from small to big, mm -hmm. the, the, the 200 unit guys are 
having the same problem as the 10 unit guys. You look at your performa, you put that higher interest rate in, your construction loan is really expensive. So your holding costs while you're in many months of permitting, a year or two of construction, those holding costs go up a ridiculous amount. Mm -hmm. The capital that you borrow goes up because a lot of developers don't use their own money. It's investor capital. The cost of that goes up. And then when you finish the project, you started it with a construction loan. So when you finish the project, you have to get out of that construction loan. That getting out looks so ugly right now where a lot of the developers that already started construction, there's definitely going to be a problem when they're trying to replace that construction loan because the interest rates change your mortgage payments. And the amount of your mortgage payments changes how much of a loan you qualify for. That number is very low right now. So mm. if you started off with a $10 million construction loan and you were hoping for a $12 million replacement loan so that you were going to pull $2 million out and disperse it to your investors as like an early Christmas bonus before you exit the project or whatever you were going to do with that money. Now, instead of getting $2 millions out, you're putting $2 million in. Mm. Like that type of drastic change. So a lot of the projects that are already above ground I hope that they can perm out of those construction loans. And the guys who are now looking for new projects or who have projects that haven't come off the ground, like there's a lot of projects that the land is bought, the permits are pulled. The bank is like, hey, are we doing this? And the developer is like, dude, like I can't because mm -hmm. my perm out loan looks really ugly and the construction costs haven't come down yet. So either the construction costs have to come down by like 30% or you need to lock me in for like a really low interest rate loan right now and guarantee it to me and the banks aren't doing that. Mm. So I don't see any new development coming up for a bit, especially downtown. I don't really know where downtown is going. I hope it's going in the right direction, but like I could totally see the difference between downtown and midtown. Like midtown was way worse than downtown and then it got developed mm. and now all those local business owners are crushing mm -hmm. like there isn't many businesses that go out in midtown it happens like very rarely compared to other parts of town yeah because midtown businesses just do really well people love midtown mm -hmm. they go spend money they go hop from business to business there's a lot of walking commute and a lot of like beautiful businesses and and these exist because it's developed those business owners are able to make the money that they do. And I mean, I know a lot of them. I know there's the businesses there do pretty well. There, there's some that kind of struggle, but time will solve their problems. Mm -hmm. Like time is against you in downtown. In midtown, time is for you as a business owner. Mm -hmm. The more you stay open, the more customers know your name, the more frequency you build for your customers, they come to you more often, they spend more money, you do better. Yeah. Downtown is like the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more about the focus on Midtown because like Marmot has largely worked in Midtown. You were saying like 90% of your stuff has been Midtown focused. So there's housing, there's commercial development down there. Can you just talk a little bit more about like Midtown, how it was, how it is now and kind of the the projects that you've done and kind of the, the specific changes that have helped Midtown be what it is now? Sure. So Marmot, historically, we've been mostly residential in Midtown, which I think we did great. There's a lot of neighborhoods that we literally did blocks and blocks of some neighborhoods. And those neighborhoods, yeah, I mean, granted, okay, rent went up a little bit, but the quality went up even more. Hmm. So making those neighborhoods more modern, more attractive, helped bring a lot of people to that area that otherwise would have had no home. Like we have so many beautiful tattoo shops in Midtown. A lot of those tattoo artists live in Midtown. Hmm. We have so many beautiful salons and shops a lot of those guys are local 
And so like making Midtown that way gave a lot of the young people in Reno an opportunity to do something cool. And if they didn't have that, like where would they go? So they would have to go into different cities or they would have to make a drastic change. So we want to give a home for people like that. Mm -hmm. Midtown is the home of creative, cool, hustling, like awesome people. Like you go out in Midtown, you're going to meet some good people. Like you're going to meet people who are like you, who are young, running their businesses. I've noticed that a lot more and more every year that I've been in Midtown. So I know a lot of people don't like that Midtown is developing, but like it's inevitable. And we'd rather do it in a controllable manner than let some outside source do it. Mm -hmm. So I hope people kind of give us a little bit more credibility because we're local. Mm -hmm. And like we don't outsource our contractors or like we don't outsource our investors or like extract money from Reno and it leaves Reno. Mm -hmm. We don't do that. Yeah. Our investors are local. Our contractors are local. We're local. I live right off California. I, I live in Newlands Manor. So like I hope people give us credit for that. But we still feel it sometimes that, you know, people look at our projects and go, oh, you should have done it another way. You should have donated it to this. Like, dude, <laughs> who's going to pay for it? <laughs> right. What uh, do you mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think there's also like the contrast between downtown and midtown makes it pretty clear where there is investment. That's where you see activity and that's where you see people and that's where you see new businesses. And downtown, like, I think that there's starting to be some of that. I know that like Jessica Schneider opened Junkie downtown and mm -hmm. part of her mission right now and we'll talk about the junkie building yep. in Midtown too, but she's talked about, she was one of the people who really, I think, drove a lot of the interest in Midtown. And she's talking about like, she wants to do the same thing downtown, but it takes people actually investing and paying that money and attention to the area. And you can see the contrast between, you know, all of this development and work that you've done in Midtown and Marmot's done in Midtown. And then you see the result of what Midtown is. And then you don't see that in downtown. And then you see what downtown is. So one of the things that I know the city's done is this tenant improvement money, oh, right? Dude, Brian McArdle is one of the best. We're very lucky to have him in yeah. the city. <laughs> can, can, can you talk a little yeah. bit more about that? So it's basically like a city program that offered money for tenant improvements and for facade improvements for, uh, and not just in downtown, but kind of like everywhere. But can you talk about kind of the city's investment in pushing along, you know, projects and sure. improving these places? So downtown is kind of cursed in a way that there's a handful of property owners that kind of control a majority of downtown. Like between three guys, mm -hmm. there is a lot of properties that are kind of waiting for the right tenants to come. And it's a deadlock because, you know, the high class, like the Starbucks tenants of the world don't want to be in downtown because it doesn't fit their metrics. Mm -hmm. It doesn't fit their population, walkthrough, safety, et cetera, metrics, those guys aren't going to come downtown. So we're not going to see like a Lululemon open downtown, not with the metrics we have. So it's kind of on us and like local business owners to make it something. But it's cursed right now because a lot of the business owners, they're not doing well. There's not a lot of traction there and it hasn't been getting better for them. Hmm. I talk with them daily. There's a few that are doing well, but a majority of them are not doing well. So if you have business owner friends in downtown, check on them because I don't, I don't know in what direction it's going to go. But I know for the last two years, especially with like a recession scare, their sales have been going down. And I think there's a lot we can do there, but we're kind of gridlocked with these small amount of property owners that own a large number of properties mm -hmm. that they don't really want to spend their own money. 
they don't want to bring the building up to code. Like a lot of those buildings, the vacant buildings are not up to code because there's no tenant in them. There's no code being triggered. They don't have sprinklers. Their monitored fire alarms might not be working. They don't have fire extinguishers. They're vacant, just tinder boxes waiting to catch on fire. And then like, there's not much we could do. So a new tenant coming in has to bring all of that up to code and then do their own construction, buy their own furniture. I don't know many tenants that want to come downtown, spend, you know, two, three hundred grand for space to bring up the code and then spend their own money on their own stuff. Like Mm -hmm. they have to improve the landlord's building to be able to open their business. So those guys aren't going to come in. So there has to be some sort of arbitrage. There has to be some sort of like gap filler in there to help move that along. And I think the facade program, it's not a lot of money for these property owners. It's 50 grand for inside, 50 grand for outside. 100 grand, it's a lot of money per se, but as far as how much these buildings need, it's a fraction of it. Mm -hmm. But it's an olive branch. I think this is the first time the city has done anything like this with any property owner. And if our two options are don't do anything about it and hope the problem will solve itself, which it won't, Mm -hmm. and then it's just going to get worse, it's going to get a lot worse, or try to grease up the wheel a little bit, try to extend that olive branch show to property owners, hey, the city has the same alignments as you. The city wants to see your buildings nice. The city wants to help you. Like people are looking at these property owners as, oh, they're rich. They should just do it themselves. But they're taking risks because like I personally would buy a lot of those buildings if I could. I mean, they don't really, the what they're asking for, 90% of the time, there's no price. Like there's no conversation. They don't want to sell it. It's like, hey, this is my building. I don't want to sell it. And then 10% of the time, it just doesn't pencil. Like the price that they want is too high. So I don't really know what they're waiting for, but they have that right to be waiting if they want to. If you talk to those guys, they're like, hey, dude, the city hates us. The city wants to kill us. Why would we spend money? If I spend 500 grand on this building to bring it back to life somehow, and like, am I going to find the right tenant? I don't think so. If I put a tenant in and they default, now I just lost all that money. I could have made money with that money, but I sunk it into my building and nothing changed. Mm. My building sucks. Like there's this standoff where landlords are like, tell the city to help. Tell the city to help with homeless issue or help with parking or help bring these buildings back to life because I don't want to take that risk because because of all these other issues, it doesn't pencil for me. So I hear both sides Mm. and there has to be something in the middle to bring those people closer and make them friends. And I think Brian did an absolutely fantastic killer job with that program. He had so many things against him, but he like pushed it and he got it. So really happy for that. I haven't used that program. I don't have any properties that I needed to use that program for. I'd love to use that program if I could, but the timelines didn't fit Mm. for my projects and my projects stand on their own feet. I don't rely on grants. It would be nice to get grants, but if I'm relying on a grant to do a project, I'm not doing that project. Right. (laughs) Just in case. Yeah. So mentioning the junkie building in Midtown. So that's a a new project for you too, right? Can you talk about the, you know, junkie move to Reno Public Market and to downtown? So that location, right, kind of in the heart of Midtown, what's the, what's the, what's happening with the junkie building? So it's been for sale for a really long time. Part of that for sale was when junkie was in there. And I don't really think that mattered to developers. She wasn't on a lease. So like, the local guys, like for us, we saw that building for sale and we wouldn't even underwrite it because we're like, dude, we're not going to be the guys to kick junkies out. Are you kidding? (laughs) 
Like that's career suicide. Right. <laughs> we can't do that. So we didn't even underwrite it. We didn't even look at it. It wasn't an option. I think my old partner, Eric, came to me a few times and said, hey, what do you think of this project? Like the land is really good. It's kind of expensive, but we can do a cool project there. And I remember telling him, I was like, dude, the only way you do a project there is you find a temporary home for junkies, you build out a space for them, and then you bring them back and then give them like fair rent. That's the only way you do it. You can't just put an apartment building there. You'll never do work in Reno again. Mm. So I think that was the only conversation I remember having before it. And then junkies left. And then it was about vacant for like a year almost. And then I was like, oh, cool. An apartment building doesn't work here. It's just too expensive. The market doesn't make sense. But the building is beautiful to convert to like multiple retail units. It's like one continuous, almost 20,000 square foot building. So our plan is to put exterior facing doors on every single side and divide the building up to six, potentially seven retail tenants on the first floor, bars, restaurants, coffee shops, et cetera, just reactivate that building for Midtown. And then I believe we're going to put our office on the second floor. So Marmot Properties is going to be on that second floor there. So we're going to be in our own building that we developed, which is really cool. We're going to probably move in earlier because we just need a super quick cosmetic renovation upstairs for the office. So we might move in early and manage the project downstairs while we're in it. <laughs> right. But yeah, we have some really awesome tenants lined up. Some cool, all local guys. So nice. it's going to be killer. What's the, what kind of timeline is there on a project like that, right? Like you haven't done anything with that building yet. So mm-hmm. when, you know, when would people expect that they will see businesses actually open? And I mean, obviously you can't precisely guess a date sure. right now, but kind of what time, what timeline is there for projects like that in Midtown right now? Because we're our own GC, we get to control time a little bit better. I think we can move quicker than normal players who have that kind of lagging communication with each other. I could just yell across the office and say, hey dude, what the heck, where are the doors? <laughs> but for us, it probably takes about four months to permit at least. One month to design, three months for city approvals, if you're lucky, three months for city approvals. Like if you somehow, I don't think there's ever doing it perfectly. So I don't think anybody can just do one submittal that like suffices all needs. So minimum three months up to like eight months of permitting. Hmm. While you're permitting, there are some things you can do. Like you can do basic demo of like non-structural stuff, like just super basic stuff. You could prep for like rough inspections. You can do some work. You can clean up the site, get it ready for your contractors. You can order your materials, get it on site. There's, But there's still like a decent amount of dead time there while you wait for your permits. But once the permits are there, it's probably going to take us four to five months after. So I'd say about total all in eight to 12 months for construction on that project. But I think the normal market average is probably like 18, 24 months, something Mm -hmm. along those lines. Yeah. Another project that you just did recently was the uh, old Santa Fe, and now it's the mm-hmm. Fay restaurant downtown, and you have like salon type suites upstairs. And that's speaking of downtown, right? Like you mostly work in Midtown, but that's a downtown project, like heart of downtown, really. And close, you know, the ballpark apartments. I think once those are actually open, ha- that space seems to make sense, especially for a restaurant right there. Can you talk a little bit about the the history of that building and what brought you to work on that project and what it looks like now? So. We, we have some really good broker partners in Reno that we do a lot of deals with. And one of our broker partners brought us that deal and said, hey, this you know, historic building is available. It's a really cool building. You want to check it out? And this was last year, or I'm sorry, 2022. We closed the purchase in late December of 2022. And I looked at the building and I said, wow, this is a really cool building. It 
can I walk it? And I walked it and it was really rough. The restaurant was being used as an office space for the construction company across the street. The second floor was like 20 motel suites, like one shared bathroom, one shared shower, one shared laundry room. No woman, no kids allowed. Kind of like the rooms just had a sink in it. So at first we didn't really know what to do, but the more we looked at it, the more we're like, okay, this is kind of like a historical preservation project where the only way we'll do it is if we bring a Basque tenant back to the first floor. That like has to happen. That That's a must in the project. The second floor, even though it was, it was actually licensed as a motel, I have no clue how the city allowed that to happen. Like <laughs> that was rough upstairs. Like there were so many life and life and safety hazards, but it was, a, it was being ran as a motel. So because there was sinks in every room, every esthetician tenant, you know, hair, massage, nail, tattoo, they all need sink per license. So I said, okay, we do salon suites upstairs. So we entered contract. We moved the construction company to the back of the building. There's an office space there. And then we found the old managers of the Santa Fe, which was a Basque restaurant for so long. And they came on as the owners. So now they own their own business. And you said you've been there lately. Mm -hmm. They're crushing. Yeah. Like they're really leaning into that Basque and people are responding really well. You could definitely feel that that is not a new business. Like when you walk in, that Basque restaurant feels like it's been there for 30 plus years. And it has. With these owners, like these guys are really professional with what they do. Their Basque food is amazing. The prices are very good. The service is awesome. Mm. I definitely recommend everyone to at least check it out once. But a lot of their customers are like, super repeat like every time you go in there it's like the same crowd because like the basque population i didn't know how large it was in reno i didn't even know what basque was until i came to reno mm -hmm. uh yeah, well we have an episode this season all about basque history and basque culture with the the head of the basque library at unr so i don't know if that episode will have already been out before this one or if it's coming out after this one but yeah it's a huge part of our our kind of culture and community here yeah and it's amazing so being a part of that project was awesome and especially Junkies building is used to be the Coca-Cola bottling plant and we're keeping the building. We're going to make it really nice and we're going to try to, I mean, I, I wish I can like preserve all the doors and windows and stuff. Like we're going to do our best, but just bringing these buildings back to life and reactivating them, that's what preserves them. Like preserving a window sometimes like hurts preserving the building because you have to get these buildings functional. Mm -hmm. Like at any point a developer can come in and be misaligned with the community and just demo the building and do something else. So like you have to be able to activate them in one way or another, get them cash flowing. And like once you get that value up to a certain level and it transacts at that level, like that building is not going to get demoed. Mm. Like nobody's going to buy a really expensive, historically preserved, high functioning, high rent collecting building and demo it. So Increasing that value and forcing that appreciation is what preserves the building. Hmm. That, I, that's just one way to think about it. And, and I'm just thinking logically here. If our goal was to preserve every building or as much buildings as possible, that's the best way to do it because it locks it in. And then like, no, like it, it's really difficult to unbreak that. Mm -hmm. What other big projects do you have right now in the works or what else are you working on? I think this year, so we raised a considerable amount of money for a fund that we're going to be doing between downtown and midtown. Right now, every project we take, investors go in there individually. This fund would essentially have people going into it directly and then we'd be managers of the fund. So it kind of gives us a lot more brain space to work with knowing that we 
essentially don't have to report individually for projects to individual investors, that we have one large fund and it's all local Reno capital that we get to manage that has a longer horizon for an exit rather than one to two year project exits. It goes for like five to seven, eight year exits. So we have much more breathing room in our models that we don't have a gun to our head. And uh, it's a bit more institutional size capital. So it's much lower returns. So we're able to open up the pool of projects we can take, the amount of projects we can take. Because like there isn't like a million projects that we can do and we're like, oh, which one should we do today? <laughs> it's really hard to find projects. That's the critical line. Like we could take 10 more projects on if they penciled. Like mm-hmm. if they worked on Excel sheets, we could take 10 more right now. We have the capacity. Easy. And we could more than double our project size if we wanted to. Uh, but there just isn't really that many projects. So the trick is, okay, are the projects going to come find us or do we have to somehow make the existing projects that we have that don't pencil, pencil? So it helps us kind of open up our number of projects we can take between downtown and midtown. So hoping when everything goes through, we're going to be able to do some really cool projects. I'm going to try to do them downtown as much as possible. I'd love to do downtown projects. I don't know how many of them are available. Like, I don't really know. Maybe no matter what I do, it won't work. Like, I'm going to try my best, but I wouldn't be surprised if I did everything I could and then couldn't find another project in downtown Hmm. just because it has to pencil on spreadsheets and we're very far away from that. Yeah. What else did I miss? What else do you want people to know about how Reno is growing and changing and the work that you're doing? What's What should people take away from this conversation? I think Reno is becoming a really cool place to be a self-employed person, to be a 1099. I think that's a beautiful direction that our city is going in where you can work for a company if you want, but if you want to pursue your own dreams, like it's becoming that city. Like the old LAs and you know these ma- the old major cities where you could have gone and did something really big now, like good luck penetrating those markets because they're totally oversaturated and overbought. Reno isn't. The industries in Reno are very open. No matter what you want to do in Reno, you're know, going to tech, real estate, restaurant, any sort of retail ownership. You have a good pool of labor. You have really cool people here. You have a great population here that are also hustlers and they make money. Like the average consumer spending, I think in Reno is like pretty high. People really like to enjoy themselves here. So the consumer spending is pretty good here for businesses. So I think we have a beautiful market here to do some really cool things. And I wish it could appeal to everyone. I wish that city could... You know, I, I don't know if it's if that is even possible. Like to appeal to every single person in a society is like really difficult. But we could make methodical decisions of appealing to as much people as possible, giving people the best opportunities possible for them to take those chances. I think that's really cool. And that's happening in Reno. Hmm. So if you're out there and you're like, oh, should I do something? Go do something. Like the city is growing in a way that just by existing and exposing yourself to the city the growth will grow you. And then if you grow yourself, that's a bonus. That's like gravy. But the city will help you grow and, and carry it, carry you with the growth of it. Mm. So I definitely encourage anybody looking to do some businesses, open businesses. Like I've seen a lot of people, especially in our portfolio, like these guys who are like, they want to get out of the cycle. They want to get out of the chain of just, like they want to open their own business and and control their own hours, control their own income. And I've seen so many of them do it and crush. And they look back and they go, damn, why didn't I do this sooner? Mm. This is not that hard. Like, this is pretty easy. 
So I've seen that firsthand so many times in Reno that I encourage everybody, open businesses, throw your body into the fire, give it your all, and very high chance it's going to return like what you're looking for. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It was good to have you on the show and learn more from people who are actually doing development, right? Like one of the continuing themes I'm realizing on this show is that talking to people who are doing different types of work or different types of things, whether not just in business, but like in, in nonprofits and like our local government about what they do is much more educational than talking or guessing about other people, right? Like talking to people instead of about people. I'm finding is kind of the the theme of the show. <laughs> so that, it's nice to have someone who's actively working on a lot of development stuff around Midtown and downtown, especially since it's such a, like a big topic of conversation. So hopefully this episode and this conversation has kind of shown a light on on what developers are, what you're doing in the area, what motivates you. So I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Yeah, cheers. Thanks for having me. And honestly, private small media is, I think, the best type of media there is because you guys are just giving a lot of local people options. Like I see a lot of national headlines. I hate those headlines. I don't care about anything that happens nationally. I care about locally. We were just talking about this. Mm -hmm. I think the the local podcasts and these small private media are the best thing to happen to our community because like I listen to your show and there's so many people on there that I just don't have time to meet or like I'm not going to run into and I can't even think about emailing them and going because I don't know who they are or I don't know how it works. I don't know how some branches in our city works. So listening to those people helps a lot. Uh, and I'm sure if they listen to this, they would understand it more as well. So that you guys are definitely bridging that gap between all sides. Yeah. So well done. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah, cheers. The conversation did not actually end there. We talked for another 10 minutes or so about local business, creating businesses, starting businesses, lessons learned from the businesses that Bot has worked on in the past. This bonus content is available just for patrons of the show at any level, even $3 a month. You can learn more at patreon.com slash arenawhites. Here's a little peek of the extra 10 minutes or so from this episode. This season, as I'm trying to do like bonus content for patrons, right? So let's talk about, you know, you just talked about entrepreneurship and opening businesses and you've had you know experience in opening and running businesses and it's brought you into development so let's talk a little bit more about kind of the the nitty-gritty of opening a business kind of the challenges that sure. you face so what what did you learn from opening your businesses and kind of getting started opening and running businesses for people who you know might want to open a business of their own so the first one is the easiest your first business i really think is the easiest because you just don't take no for an answer. Like there is no failure. Like it's not an option. <laughs> you literally throw your body into the fire and you burn and you struggle and you try so hard that you make it. Like there is no giving up. So I think that's why the first one is easiest because you give it your all. And then after you have one successful business, the second one is the hardest because now you're risking your first one to open the second one. Even though you're way more comfortable, the second one becomes hardest. And then after like five or six, it's just, you could do it in your sleep. If anybody is thinking of going in that direction, most likely that's what that direction will look like. The first one makes it. The first one, you do okay enough to exit. Like you don't lose your ass. You just like, you, you make enough and then you either hand it off to your manager or you sell it or you get your money back, but it makes it. And then you learn so much that you just take off from there. It becomes like subconsciously a part of you. Like learning, I think is memorization. And the more you can memorize, 
the more you learn how to do it. And in that business, opening that business for the first time, you learn and you memorize so much, you never forget it. Mm-hmm. And so I think anybody out there looking to open a business in the beginning, the hardest part is the funding. Like my Hukava, I did it like all on credit cards. Like I did it so <laughs> risky. Nobody should do it that way. I don't recommend that. <laughs> how how should people do it? I mean, if you know interest rates are high, it's hard to get loans. Mm-hmm. Those kind of things. Like for people who have a business idea, who have the knowledge, who want to do that, how would you recommend they go about finding investors or or getting the money? First off, you have to make as diligent of a map as possible of what this business is going to perform like. So, Okay, that's the actual end of the episode for non-patrons. Thank you so much for listening, and special thanks to my guest, Batuan Zade from Marmot Properties, and thanks for all the work you're doing in development in the Reno area. I know developers are often bad guys, but as a pro-housing person, as a person who wants to see more housing of all types, I am grateful for anyone who's out there building stuff. So thanks for coming on the show, talking about what you do and why it matters for the city. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you have thoughts, feedback, suggestions, again, you can email me, Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com, or comment on Instagram. Of course, I post all these episodes on Instagram. Feel free to engage, converse with me in the comments. Always good to hear from listeners. And be sure to spread the word about the show. This project really relies on word of mouth from listeners and fans and supporters, so... Tell your friends, tell your family, order stickers. I have merchandise, stickers, t-shirts, and stuff available. I was driving the other day, and I actually saw a Listen Local Renoite sticker on the back of a car. Thanks for rocking some Renoites merch. I'm thinking about making full-size bumper stickers. I don't know. Let me know what you would like to see that will help me share the show and you share it with friends. You can share posts on social media. Tag your friends in the comments if you think they'd be interested in episodes. Anything you can do really helps out a lot. That's all I've got for you this week. See you next time.